Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 256 of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Thanks for tuning in to another interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I'm joined by food scientist, microbe guru, and television celebrity, Faye Johnson. She captured my imagination recently as I listened to her spin mystical tales about the unseen forces that work behind some of our favorite fermented and distilled beverages, so I thought that I'd invite her on the podcast to share some of her microbiological wisdom with you. But before we start talking about Scandinavian yeasts, Bretanomyces, and how to figure out what's fermenting in your home zip code, let's take a quick pause so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is, well, all right, this seems to be a trend lately. It's actually a cocktail ingredient, and that ingredient is beer syrup. To make this versatile and surprisingly complex cocktail ingredient, you'll need Beer, and not just any kind, will do. Pick something special, something flavorful, something that inspires your mixological mind. And then you need sugar. You could also choose to pick this ingredient carefully. And, of course, heat. That's about it. To make your beer syrup, you're going to want to do a thing that might be punished harshly in certain cultures. You're going to let that beer go flat. Crack it. Maybe put some cheesecloth over the opening so no bugs get in there. But let that CO2 vent off so that you're dealing with the non-carbonated variety of whatever beer you're using. I'd actually recommend leaving it in the fridge so that you don't get any weird temperature-related flavor changes. Once you've got your flat beer, you're going to basically make a simple syrup out of it, but here's the twist. You can do the usual thing, add equal parts beer and sugar by weight to a saucepan and stir until the sugar dissolves, and this will work. You might get some foaming that you'll probably want to skim off, and I think that's fine. Most bartenders will agree that a rich, simple syrup is better than a straight-up 50-50, but some recipes out there also recommend that you only sweeten it maybe lightly less than 50-50, and instead achieve your desired syrup consistency by cooking down the product until it evaporates to your textural satisfaction. Well, I'm here to dissuade you from that. In our conversation with Faye this episode, you're going to learn about some of the amazing things that yeast can do. And if you find a beer that really speaks to you, If that beer noodles its way into a part of your brain that's connected to your favorite gin or whiskey or tequila cocktail and a light bulb goes off, why would you want to cook that beer to death? That would be partially undoing all the great flavor work that those yeast did while you were watching Netflix. So my recommendations for your next beer syrup are twofold. Number one, pick a beer that's unique and that's going to yield a syrup that will blow your friends' minds when they come over for cocktail hour. And number two, try to have a light touch with the heat so that you don't end up making yeasty molasses or caramel on your stove. 
Of course, when you get your end product, the real challenge is gonna be figuring out how to use it in a cocktail with your favorite spirits. And that's where I'd love to hear what kinds of experiments you're running and how they turn out. So feel free to tag us on Instagram at Modern Bar Cart with your creations and we'll give you a shout out and encourage you on your way. So now that you've found a new appreciation for beer as a cocktail ingredient, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this fascinating conversation with food scientist, distiller, and tamer of yeast, Faye Johnson, some of the topics we cover include how Faye's childhood exposure to fermented foods and her formal experience testing foods for harmful microorganisms led her to hopscotch her way through the worlds of cake decorating, cheese making, brewing, and distilling. What it's like to receive samples bearing live native yeasts literally in the mail, and then test those samples for viable applications in the brewing and distilling world as part of Bootleg Biology's local yeast project. How she used her expertise to save a Midwest brewery from dreaded flavor drift by locating and scientifically isolating the precise yeast strain that made their product famous in the first place and what it's like to compete on a national stage as a contestant on a recent episode of Moonshiner's Master Distiller. Along the way, we cover how to come to terms with any fears you might have about microorganisms, the ways in which microbial communities working together are like a crowd cheering at a concert, what to do if Faye calls you toffee honey biscuit, and much, much more. This conversation is a little different than the kinds we usually have here, and that's intentional. I'm a generalist who delights in talking and working and learning with specialists because they're able to reach deep into the corners of flavor experience and pull out truths that actually have the capacity to change the way we think about what we drink. So with that, please enjoy this yeasty but incredibly food-safe conversation with former cheesemaker, Norwegian yeast pronunciation skeptic, and the pride of New Jersey's Belmara distillery, Faye Johnson. Faye, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Eric. Uh, we met recently, just a couple weeks back, uh, at probably the best place to meet, which is the wedding of a distiller. Uh, so, I mean, I know about you and your background, but for our listeners who weren't there hanging out with us, uh, could you just give us a little brief intro to who you are and what you do? Yeah. So, hey, my name is Faye Johnson. Um, I am 31 years old. Uh, professionally by trade, I'm a distiller. Um I have a bachelor's in science and food science. Um, professionally, I also have a background in baking, uh, culinary arts and hospitality, uh, cheese production and manufacturing, and then also beer manufacturing and distilled spirits manufacturing. So I'm, I'm just a big food nerd. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that was sort of what, what drew me to you as, you know, a, a great guest for the show because, you know, we've had plenty of distillers on the podcast before, and there's so many different aspects of distillation and, you know, the barrel aging and the, you know, botanically infusing spirits. But one of the areas where we maybe have a little bit less coverage in our 250 plus episodes is the, so the sort of microbiome, like these little bugs, the yeasts, the bacteria that kind of float around under the surface. And uh, it seems to be an area, I mean, like you just listed, 
baking, cheese making, brewing, like all of this deals with things that are occurring below the level that we can perceive with our bare eyes. So, I mean, I'm wondering like if you could maybe go a little bit deeper into your background and pull out some of the the little stepping stones along the way that brought you from, you know, somebody who was dabbling in the culinary arts all the way up through some of these really incredible like experiences you've had manipulating yeast and other types of things that we can't see. Uh, yeah. So, um, I mean, fermentation has been trendy for, uh, I guess, almost like 10 years now, or at least like since I've kind of come into acknowledging it as a trend in the U.S. Um, and with slow, like the whole slow foods movement and everything. Um, but um, so uh, I'm half Korean. Um, so just growing up with kimchi and fermented soybean products, um, just I, I just grew up with fermented foods. It was just kind of always there. So it's not something I ever really thought about. And then in high school, um, I was fortunate enough to go to my county's magnet high school where I um, was studying food. I was studying culinary arts, baking and pastry arts, hospitality. And so learning the basic fundamentals of cooking and preparing foods um, and just seeing how you throw ingredients together and transform it into a dish just really piques my interest and curiosity. So. When it came to pursuing an undergrad, I was like, okay, I love food. I don't necessarily want to cook or bake professionally, but how can I get the answers or start asking the right questions about food? So that led me to pursuing food science. Um, food science is the study of food as a system. So everything about food or individual ingredients or components before you eat it, after that, it's nutrition. A lot of people get those two things confused. So uh, I can talk about egg proteins for days, but I can't tell you how your body uses that for muscle mass or anything like that. Um, but the the classes that got me most interested uh, when I was in my undergrad uh, were all my food microbiology classes. So I, uh, I did pathogen research for three years. <laughs> so um, part of uh, my project is to go around to the Rutgers University dining halls, audit their kitchens, go out to the service line, like the buffets or where they were serving the hot foods, taking temperatures of everything and anything that was out of whack, like either too hot at the salad bar or too cold at like the hot buffet. Um, I would pull those food samples back to the lab and then screen them for E. coli, salmonella, listeria, uh, different types of clostridium. Um, so I definitely leaned into the food can be very dangerous territory, but I think it's really easy to fall into that slippery soap of becoming afraid of bacteria, becoming afraid of yeast, afraid of molds, because we know it can make us sick. With the pandemic going around, we know that viruses make us sick, right? So. I kind of really leaned into embracing, well, at one point in time, I learned that 30% of the world's foods are fermented or use microorganisms in some kind of way to preserve it or add really unique sensory characteristics like flavors, aromas, textures. Um, so how can I lean into working with microorganisms to make food, to make food interesting, to make food safe, to make it healthy, to make it delicious, nutritious, whatever. Um, so that's when I really leaned into fermentation, which uses microorganisms to preserve a food. It's more of a controlled rot, if you think about it that way, because the microorganisms are 
eating the food or whatever sugar content is there for them and then digesting it and what they produce from digesting food is then what we utilize or we eat or whatever as human beings um so i started home brewing beer my senior year of college when i was 21 and uh, i got an internship my senior year of college uh, at a local dairy farm where i learned how to make 30 different varieties of cheese so that was really cool. Like taking milk, which is a fresh product, not shelf stable at all, and being able to use different types of molds and bacteria to transform it into a food that can last a really long time and have a different slew of nutritional benefits compared to something like milk. And then, you know, without yeah. yeast, there's no alcohol. I feel like it's really easy to forget that critical point. Um, but, you know, without yeast, there's no beer, there's no wine, there's no whiskey or gin. Um, so my job as a distiller right now is to make the best food possible I can for yeast so that I can set them up for a successful fermentation so that they can make the most delicious alcohol-based product possible. And then I kind of just humbly take their fermented goods and turn it into the best distilled spirits I can to kind of honor those yeasts and the work that they did so that we can have a good time later. Yeah. I'm sure the all of the employees at the uh, at the Rutgers dining hall were, uh, were were huge fans of yours as you were going around auditing the uh, auditing the hot and cold lines. Um, wow, that's uh, that's a lot. And, you know, there's a, there's a couple things that jumped out to me as you were describing that progression from someone who grew up in a home where kimchi was frequently on the table to someone who then was responsible for identifying the possibly harmful pathogens to now somebody who is trying to, you know, kind of work on the light side of the force with the, you know, with the uh, microorganisms that create these amazing flavors and aromas. I'm interested in this, like asking the right questions about food, right? You, you said this is you kind of said it almost in passing. And I'm interested in that relative to almost the dissonance that you must have felt working as you did with these, like all these harmful, like bacteria that give us food poisoning, literally, they, they literally poison us. Um, and then like, so was it, was it that in light of the fact that you grew up eating all these fermented foods that kind of propelled you forward? Like, I, I just feel like, for example, I was a lifeguard when I was in high school and college. I now have no interest in ever going into like an aquatic center or pool ever again. I just think it's a, a horrible like chlorine toilet and I never want to do it. So like I was kind of scarred by that and I, I could see like the, the the pathogen research almost having that effect on you. But it, it seems like it had the like a different effect. You actually leaned more into it. So why do you think that is? Well, I mean, you have to take the good and bad, right? I mean, just living your day-to-day -day life, you're inherently taking risks. You're you're doing risk assessments in your head, whether that's something that you're aware of or not. And it's funny because the, the lab I actually worked in had a really long title, but uh, part of it was risk assessment lab. Um, it was like a food microbiology and safety risk assessment lab or something like that. It's, it's, it's been a while since I've been in the lab. Very long acronym. But anyway, um, so... Yeah, no, there was definitely a point in my career where I was um, afraid of eating salads, uh, afraid of eating like fresh foods. Um, I still to this day avoid certain things uh, like fresh cut produce at supermarkets. 
but the more informed and educated you are about what you're consuming, both from like, uh, and by consumption, I mean, products you're choosing to buy, products you're actually choosing to literally consume and eat, um, ingest, whatever, the more informed your choices can be and the more empowered you are as a consumer and having that autonomy of the choices that you make for yourself and your body and what you want to work. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, I definitely went through that experience of like, oh, uh, I left this yogurt out on my counter for two and a half hours. And technically by food safety definitions, after two hours, it is now above 40 degrees Fahrenheit for too long. And if there were any potential harmful bacteria, they are now growing, they are now colonizing, they're going to grow enough so that when I eat this yogurt, I am suddenly going to become deathly ill. I need to throw this yogurt out right now. Like I, I definitely been through those stages of my life but yeah by becoming more informed i'm sorry that's my cat walking back um so <laughs> by becoming more informed and educated uh, <laughs> about food and systems and how it works it's helped me personally determine what risks i'm willing to take when it comes to the foods i choose to eat so mm. i have gotten sick off of oysters but i love them enough and I know the risks well enough that I will still choose to eat them. Um, <laughs> but also, I mean, with doing uh, food microbiology research in particular, you know, you learn about things like MRSA, um, multi-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. Um, so staph infections, yes, that can be like a skin infection that you can get from um uh, direct contact with something, but that's all you can also ingest staph and essentially get the food poisoning version of staph because it can grow in food too. That's, so, that's a little terrifying. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, the, these, these things are inherently scary. Um, but it's also important to recognize that if you set up a healthy food system, like for instance, with fermented foods, um, if you set up your, your cultures that you're adding on purpose um, or allowing to grow on purpose for success, they will outcompete most harmful organisms. So pretty much just by them being in there and taking over, eating up whatever nutrients are in that food. So for beer and for single malt spirits, for instance, um, when you add your yeast to your sugary barley wort or your barley tea, they're in there eating up all that sugar. They're reproducing over and over. So now you have billions of yeast cells. Um, they're not letting much compete with them. Um, they're going to kind of block out and prevent other things from growing in there. So inherently kind of, you know, keeping the environment safe for consumption later for us as humans. So I hope this is making sense. It's really easy for me to kind of go off on tangents. Uh, but yeah, no, uh, kind of circling back to the original question. Um, I've definitely had moments in my career where I was afraid of my environment around me. But, you know, overuse of sanitizers, being overly cautious of things, it can exacerbate any fears that you have and actually make them worse. So it's kind of better to just like, figure out where your thresholds are, where your boundaries are, what you're comfortable with, and then making choices from there. Yeah, no, that that's fascinating. I, I mean, this is exactly the type of conversation I was curious to have with you because it's just, again, like I said, a, a world and a, a way of thinking and interacting with the world that's a little different than what we normally talk about. Uh, this brings me to part of what we actually spoke about at our recent wedding where we met, which was some really fascinating research that you conducted when you were working with Corsair. And 
I mean, my mind was just kind of blown by hearing you describe this. And so I figured I'd invite you to kind of describe this process to our listeners, almost as like a little peephole into what it looks like to try and affect meaningful and interesting change in the spirits and fermented beverage worlds. So give us a little intro. Okay. So uh, this also kind of leads back to the previous question, but in 2016, I got the opportunity to begin my career in brewing and distilling um, by joining the team at Corsair Distillery in Nashville. Uh, So I left my home state of New Jersey. I put cheese farming behind me. So by joining Corsair, I was learning the ins and outs of beer production. Um, They had a small pilot system to make unique and interesting beers for only their taproom. And then uh, Corsair specializes in American single malt whiskeys. So I learned how to make a variety of whiskeys, including uh, different types of smoked whiskey varieties, rye, malt whiskey. Uh, I did learn a little bit on uh, bourbon and other corn whiskey production, but that wasn't really the focus or goal for Corsair. So that wasn't a product that we produce often. And while I was learning the in and outs of all that production, I was like, wow, I, I, I love working with yeast in this context, but there wasn't really much research or lab set up to kind of study what the yeast is doing and how to really get good information if I wanted to trial out different yeasts and things like that. So there's a company in Nashville called Bootleg Biology. They have a huge freezer library of different cultures, so yeast and bacteria, that can do a wide variety of applications in beer, cider, uh, mead, and some distillation applications. So I found out about them. I was immediately obsessed. I was like, they are doing some really cool work. So not only are they providing the standard cultures that you can get from the bigger companies like White Labs, but they also have some really unique strains as well that are harder to get that aren't mass produced. Um, like they were kind of behind the whole like uh, Norwegian wild yeast movement in the United States. So I've heard about five different ways to say it. So it could be Quebec, 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 uh, but K-V-I-E-K. Um, is uh, a type of Norwegian wild yeast that just has some really unique properties to it. So Bootleg Biology was one of like the companies behind that in the U.S. to kind of get that going and get that more available for craft brewing. And that's also been incredibly helpful for the hard seltzer. I assume it's important for hard seltzer because that's the way they get around producing high alcohol content without running it through a still and avoiding the federal excise tax on distilled spirits? And yeah, so one of the unique properties about um, Kabik Kabik yeast is that um, depending on the strain or the isolate that you have, it can ferment at 85 to 90 degrees in three days and give you a clean lager profile, like no Mm. esters, no yeast character, like absolutely nothing. So it's it's just it's it's really fascinating, but it just gives you a really clean profile. Um, personally, I'm not into fermented malt beverages like the hard seltzer thing. I understand why they exist. It is what it is. We can talk about that as well if you want. But Bootleg Biology has an open source project called the Local Yeast Project, and I was fortunate enough to kind of run that program when I was there with them. So while I was working f- full time at Corsair making products, I was then spending my days off 
at bootleg biology working with wild samples that people were mailing in so the whole objective for the local use project is to collect a viable sample from every zip code so this includes throughout the us also throughout the world pretty much uh so our mutual friend whose wedding we were at he is based out of maryland so he actually sent me samples of like flowers and berries that were local to him and I put them in beer wort to test if they could ferment anything. And I think I, from what I recall, I did actually find a yeast native to his area that was able to ferment beer. And then from there, depending on how those samples performed, then we would scale those up to a production level. So we would then make trial batches of beer with them and then test the yeast. It, was it really good at fermenting? Was it really efficient in turning all the barley sugars into alcohol? Did it make unique flavors? Did it make unique aromas? What did this yeast do to make something interesting and unique? And then from there, you can scale that up into having like a new product uh, for brewers to try out either at their brewery or at home so that they can make their own unique, interesting beer out of that. Then if our friend wanted to, he could now have this yeast isolate from his hometown and truly make a terroir-based beer where he can take this yeast and local ingredients to him and make something completely local that tastes only like his neighborhood. And you can't replicate that flavor anywhere else. So it's just a really, really cool project. And I also got to learn a lot about um, Britannomyces, which is a really fun souring yeast. It's a common uh, spoiler in wine. It can produce some really weird, funky flavors, but when managed appropriately in a beer, it can be really fun to use. Um, and then all about different types of bacteria used in beer production as well. Yeah, there's so many aspects of the local yeast project that resonate with me. I mean, it, it, it bears passing or more than passing resemblance to a lot of things like seed banks where you're like collecting and preserving all these different seeds from different plants around the world also like almost in a strange way resembles the human genome project kind of where you're like trying to code all these things and understand what does what in the human genome and when i think of like terroir through the microbiome the I guess the traditions that come up to my mind are like the open fermented agave spirits in Mexico or the field fermented clarins in Haiti or even the baijo chew pits in China that have been, you know, kind of working and evolving since, you know, I had somebody on the podcast where we tasted one that from a distillery that had chew pits that were active at the time when Shakespeare was born. So I think of the microbiome and, and that aspect of terroir in those cases, but this local yeast project is, is almost a little bit different than that. It's, it's a little bit more structured. It's a little bit more open, curious, almost like open source, if that makes any sense. So yeah, I mean, like, what are some of the other mm -hmm. interesting things that you found doing that project in terms of like the things that these yeasts could do, or were there any surprising discoveries that, that you, that you found along your way? Um, yeah. So, so that's one of the interesting things about the local yeast project compared to like open fermentations is when I would receive a sample, it obviously there wouldn't just be 
the one yeast that's actually doing all the work in there. There'd be other types of bacteria, other types of yeast, maybe some molds. And when you have these microbial communities working together, it's kind of like being in an audience at like a concert. You know, everyone's working together, everyone's having fun, but when the crowd is cheering, you can't tell who it's coming from or who's cheering the loudest. So by processing these samples and kind of isolating them out and just like kind of just cherry picking what I'm seeing that I know that works, it's like, oh, now I can find the person who's clapping the loudest in the room and it's actually the one who got the crowd cheering. so it's kind of just like taking everything and stripping it down. So this was something that was actually really cool that came out of the project. Um, one of our regular customers, um, it's a brewery based in the Midwest. They annually would do a special like funky, sour, barrel-aged fermented beer where they would use Britannomyces, which is like a really funky, souring yeast. Um, it can create some really interesting tropical fruit flavors, but it can also create like sweaty horse blanket, (laughs) like hay, like grassy hay flavors as well. So it can easily become unbalanced and turn your beer, but when mitigated correctly, it can create some really, really unique profiles. And so this company, they realized that over like five years, their culture, whatever Pretendomyces culture and mixed yeast culture they were using was starting to drift in its profile and they weren't happy with it anymore. And they were like, wait, we got it good this, this one time. Like, why is it not like that anymore? So they actually had two bottles saved and they mailed it to us and they were like, can you please help us get back to where we were? Cause that's where we want to be. So with the screening process, I essentially take the sample, grow it up in some just like plain beer wort with a little bit of hops in it. And then um, I would put it onto peachy dishes and just let things grow and kind of see what was there. And in the beer sample that they sent me, there were at least six different unique strains of Britannomyces in there. (laughs) So we were like, all right, these all look almost the same on the plate, but you could so um what i was looking at were the morphology so pretty much the physical characteristics of the colonies growing on the petri dishes so i would just visually looking at them see what was similar what was different and that's how i would pick out the individual ones so i would just scoop up an individual colony that was unique and then just put it on its own petri dish and i repeated that for every single type of colony that I saw in that original sample that was unique. Um, And I let those grow. And then after making sure that I had like a pure isolate, after making sure that every single colony growing on that Petri dish was uniform and unique and uniform and consistent, and they all looked the same, that's how I knew that I had a pure isolate. So everything on that Petri dish was just that one strain of Pretenomyces. I would then grow that up or propagate it in stages of beer wort. And then we made pilot batches of beer. So we took a like a, just a really basic beer recipe. So just just some DME uh, dried malt extract uh, with a very neutral hop. And we tested every single strain. We took our sensory notes on it. And then we uh, packaged up the yeast and sent it back to the brewery. They repeated the same test where they made a batch of beer with every single one um, using their 
uh, recipe for the beer that they're trying to recreate. And I found it for them. We were able to find the yeast strain that gave them the characteristics of their beer that they love so much. So they were now able to make that beer again. And because we had the resources at Bootleg Biology to cryopreserve everything, I was able to freezer bank that specific yeast strain for them. So there will always be a copy of it. They will always be able to access it when they need. And now it's preserved forever. And now other people can order it too. So that was just a a really cool thing that we were able to do at bootleg uh, just to help out one of our customers. And I think kind of like, you know, highlights the importance of the program where it's like, it's really important to look at things as a system, but sometimes you need to figure out uh, where specific attributes are coming from too. Yeah. I, I love that. I, it's to me, what that illustrates is the beauty of both the spontaneous thing, which is like, Oh, like the original thing that they did was spontaneous. They said, well, let's try this. And that experiment resulted in something wonderful. And then over time, what happens? Entropy, always, always entropy. Things kind of get out of control and there's, you know, some flavor drift in, in this. I mean, that's what microbes do is they evolve. Uh, so it, it doesn't surprise me that they came to you with this question and then it's almost like you you said, okay, I'm going to use a completely different set of methodologies and approaches and a completely different type of thinking to go in, isolate all these strains, and then do like the literal, you know, plug and play, rinse, repeat, trial and error research to locate what was initially surprising and delightful and spontaneous, but through a very structured, regimented, scientific, inductive process. And so I I love that. I love the way that those two types of thinking and those different forces were, were able to meet at this problem and then extract the problem and, and come to a really unique solution that, that actually, that actually moves the industry forward because what you just described seems like a template for a process that could happen for anybody's yeast. I mean, is that, is that accurate? Yeah, pretty much like, um, and, and to me, this is kind of the inherent part of being a food scientist too. It's like, okay, let's take the creative process behind something and make what is really cool and really interesting and something that we're happy with. But then, how can we either improve it or standardize it or make it better? Or like, how do we continue to replicate this? That's kind of like the hardest part um, when it comes to food because the conditions are always going to be different. Um, So when you're able to kind of just like strip things down and take it to the basics and see where different characteristics are coming from, um, that's how you can really start to dial in and hone things in and just like start to preserve something i it's it's it is kind of like a recipe in a way you know like you follow your steps and you might realize like oh if i mix this uh batter for too long the like cake i'm making is really tough and crumbly so what if i just adjust that a little bit um so i'm essentially doing i I, like when it comes to working with microorganisms um it's, it's kind of the same thing it's just like okay where where is this coming from? How can we figure it out? And then how can we then apply it to different things? Um, so yeah, no, it's just a total, it's, it's to me, it's just so cool and so fascinating. And I'm just really lucky that I get to do this and be a part of this. And it's something that I get to learn about all the time. 
It's fascinating to me too, and I think we'll circle back and we'll end up, you know, coming to a nice, a nice soft landing here in this conversation. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. And I thought that since it's a newish year, I'd share some thoughts on how switching to local farm-raised meat and line-caught seafood from right here in the Mid-Atlantic is a really solid New Year's resolution. First off, this is one of the few resolutions that'll be easy to stick to. That's because every month Near Country delivers right to your door and they give you a ton of customization options so that you can really personalize what's in your delivery. I have literally never seen a delivery service with such good customization and add-on options. Full stop. Second, when you see the quality of this meat, from the luxuriously dark tones of their grass-fed beef to the insane marbling on some of the cuts of their pasture-raised pork, you'll know immediately that you've got something special. And that carries through on the plate with nourishing, hearty food for the whole family. I'm a new dad, and my daughter loves sampling my food when we cook up a meal using Near Country Provisions proteins. And as if that wasn't enough, you can feel good knowing that Near Country sources their food from farmers that use sustainable and regenerative agricultural practices that create healthy animals and a healthy environment in which they can roam. A great example are their eggs, which are sourced from Warrington, Virginia, where their farm partner adheres to the highest standards of pasture-raising chickens, which means healthier birds and rich, dark yolks when you crack them open in the pan. Head over to nearcountry.com and enter the code BARCART, that's B-A-R-C-A-R-T, all one word, when you sign up for your subscription to receive two free pounds of bacon or ground beef in your first delivery. Resolve to improve the quality of the protein in your diet and vote with your wallet to support ethical, sustainable local agriculture here in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. Now back to the show. What I wanted to quickly turn our attention to almost seems like a non sequitur after talking about yeast manipulation and structured scientific studies. And that thing is your your recent appearance on uh, the TV show Moonshiner's Master Distiller. So how does one go from running experiments in a lab, doing this like cry, cryogenically freezing yeast strains and preserving them for all eternity, for all intents and purposes, to then going and talking to these folks who are running moonshine stills and asking you to do a bunch of zany challenges. Okay, so uh, yeah, I was just on season four of Moonshiner's Master Distiller. <laughs> so uh, Master Distiller is the like competition show spinoff from the Discovery Channel show Moonshiners, uh, which kind of falls around and profiles some prolific moonshiners in like the heart of moonshine country. So, you know, Tennessee, North Carolina, Virginia. So my friends who was the head distiller at Corsair was actually invited to be on season three and compete. And when the pandemic hit, I was kind of like shoved back home to New Jersey. So I moved back up here. So I was, I was brewing beer for a small craft company. And then I was I was actually doing microbiology quality control for one of the largest independent breweries in the country at the time. But they, they called me and the casting people found me on LinkedIn. I think they just typed in distiller <laughs> and saw that. And my profile came up. And it's funny because I was actually leaving my laptop at the time to 
end up at my current company, Belmar Distillery. We're a brand new distillery in New Jersey that specializes in single malt spirits. And so it was kind of great timing that they called and they were like, hey, you're a distiller. Do you want to compete on this distilling competition show? And I was like, yes, I do. My friend was just on there. She had a great time. Um, like, yeah, I'm down. Uh, so it, it was just a really fun way for me to reenter the distilling world and kind of get my feet wet in that again. So over the summer, they called me and they were like, hey, we're ready for you if you want to come. We're thinking of having you on a budget challenge. Is that something you're interested in? So the premise of Master Distiller, every episode features three unique contestants, whether they're outlaw distillers that, you know, kind of do it at home on the down low or uh, professional distillers like myself legally making alcohol, uh, which means my boss pays taxes. Um, (laughs) They were like, okay, we'll give you $30 and you have to make a finished product. For reference, at the volume size I was working at, it would have cost me a minimum of $60 in raw materials alone, not including any type of flavoring component. So I had $30 to make a full-fledged product from start to finish. So $30, did they give you a still? Like, did they, were there any other constraints? Like, what did you, what, literally, what were you leveraging this $30 to to create um so thirty dollars had to include all of my raw materials uh luckily they provided all the equipment so i had a what was it it was a 20 gallon still that was the capacity so essentially i had to make a barrel or like about 30 gallons of mash and then i had a 20 gallon still to distill it and uh, I can make whatever I wanted. So every episode, sometimes they're like, oh, you have to make this type of moonshine or you have to make this type of whiskey. And mine was just like, whatever you can come up with for $30. <laughs> so um, my two competitors, uh, they were both outlaws. <laughs> they were both farmers. So they had corn for free. They got all of their raw materials for free. So they spent their $30 on their flavoring agents. One of them made a watermelon moonshine. Um, he actually grew the watermelons too. And then the other one made a peanut butter banana moonshine. So he spent all of his money on peanut butter and bananas. And I (laughs) didn't have that luxury of free grain. So I spent all of my money on grain and sugar. So it ended up being about like 35% two row barley and the rest was like it was just white sugar, um, which I'm not used to working with. <laughs> like, uh, I'm not used to just working with like really, really processed stuff. But I actually got some really interesting flavors out of it. So I, I was really happy with my base spirit. And then I had to figure out a way to turn it into a shelf ready product. So I actually took bar weights. So one of like the main components of Belmar Distillery is our cocktail program. And so after making syrups from fresh fruits or after juicing like lemons and limes for the bar, I took all the peels from our lemons and dehydrated them. And then I, so we have a blueberry syrup that we use. Um, After transforming the blueberries into syrup, I took the leftover like fruit solids and dehydrated them into fruit leather. So I made a blueberry peach limoncello. For the show. Being from New Jersey, I had to pick something that was, you know, kind of harkens back to my home state. Um, so I use New Jersey blueberries, New Jersey peaches, 
and then the the lemons and yeah i was able to make a flavored high proof limoncello for thirty dollars <laughs> Nice. Nice. I'm glad that you did eventually have some like benefit because at first there, it just seemed like you're just like, well, you know, it's, it's, it's Faye versus these farmers who already have all the stuff they need. And so it's, I'm glad that the bar program at Belmara distillery was, was something that you could leverage. And I I don't know, to me, uh, I mean, I guess a watermelon moonshine sounds kind of interesting, but I I probably probably would have ended up, you know, being more interested in your limoncello, but that sounds like a, a fun challenge, but, but certainly one that, uh, kind of pushes you past your limits of, you know, like having to use really processed raw sugar. But again, this is in that space of creativity and also structure, right? Like you're leveraging like these very structured forces of fermentation and distillation. And you're, you also have to pass that through this filter of creativity. And so where I kind of wanted to, to land us here is like, how do you think about distillation with fermentation as, as an important part of distillation? How do you think of fermentation and distillation as art and science, where does that, where do you draw that line and how do you think about the relationship between what is more structured and scientific and what is more creative and maybe artistic about the process? So for me personally, the way I view it, it's, um, what's that movie that came out recently? Everything, everywhere, all at once. Um, it is always inherently both at the same time. There, <laughs> to me, there is no discerning between art and science when it comes to distillation, fermentation, anything food related. You need both. Like, right? It's just it's just kind of organically like happening. Like the the scientific principles are always there. The microorganisms are alive and doing their thing and whatever. But just the inherent like human creativity of it all of just being what's going on and putting those together, whether you understand the mechanics of what's happening or not. I mean, one of the questions that I get all the time is like, how did you get into this? Uh, you, you must be a scientist. You must be an engineer. And yeah, technically, I guess I am a scientist. It's still hard for me to identify as that. But most of the people I know in this industry <laughs> are artists. Uh, like mo- Most of the heads of dealers I know at different companies all have art backgrounds, whether it's art history or they were painters or sculptors or whatever. You fundamentally need both. You can't just say structured all the time. Um, you need interesting ideas from somewhere. And there is a creativity involved in you know looking at a process and seeing where you can change things. That might sound really boring and it might not sound artistic to maybe have a realization of like, oh, if I just change this one step, I can create a completely new different product because it seems like a scientific process, but just having that creative spark in the first place to change something is an inherently human thing. So for me, it's it's, it's both, like you need both. Also in high school, I thought I was going to be a cake decorator. I was like an artsy food girl and I was terrible at my science classes. I had no idea what I was doing. Nothing ever made sense. But then when I got to college, I just loved food enough that I was willing to push through all the really boring lecture classes that didn't make any sense whatsoever to me because I was interested in food enough and because I was able to be like, okay, I don't understand oxidation reduction reactions. I don't understand what electrons are doing what right now, but oh, 
an apple turns brown because of enzymes in the apple. So when oxygen is reacting with different components of the apple, it's creating these different things. And one of those byproducts is brown color. And I was like, oh, okay, like I can understand that. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, food <laughs> makes sense, but um, I, I think you inherently need both. That's brilliant. And I love that you invoked the movie Everything Everywhere all at once. Uh, I haven't seen it, but from what I understand about the film, it, it it's one of those like multiverse films and kind of, you know, different things happening in different ways in these different universes that the characters traverse. And as you were describing just now, like the, uh, the, the enzyme reaction, you were talking about, well, I don't know about electrons, but I do know, like, you know, when you leave an apple slice on the counter, it turns brown to me that that kind of invokes the, the idea of levels of description, right? So we know that there are Newtonian physics at work in this world where gravity, for example, literally like you drop something, it falls down here. That's Newtonian physics. And the crazy thing is that we also know that this Newtonian physics or these Newtonian physics also reside and kind of cohabitate with quantum physics, right? Like there's these weird entangled particles and stuff and, and you can, you know, kind of zoom out and look at quantum physics and it's got nothing to do with this. And yet they're both kind of inhabiting the same world and, and both types of forces are at play all the time. So I think it's such a great answer. And I think it's, you know, I think it also is partially like a meditative resolution to the problem of like people who want to get into this industry of like, I, I'm, I'm thinking about like young people who might be taking a path like the one that you took and being like, well, all right, well, well, I just watched this master distiller show and I just saw Faye Johnson and she looks so cool. And how do I become like her? And it's like, well, could you take a hard science route? Like, yeah, you could. Or you could also like take a much less hard science route. And also, you know, like the sculptors and, you know, art history people who are running stills elsewhere, like end up in a very similar place. So uh, I think it's I think it's somewhat comforting in that respect that that we do need both the art and the science of it. But how about we talk before we jump into the lightning round a little bit more about Belmara Distillery, because it seems like it is a newish operation, and I'm curious to see what kinds of creativity and nerdy stuff is going on at Belmara. Yeah, so I am super, super lucky to be at my current company. Um, so um, in New Jersey, there's a lot of red tape, and it's really difficult for the craft beverage industry in general. Um, so just to get a distillery started in New Jersey is incredibly difficult. And I've had people ask me over the years, like, oh, when are you going to open up your own business? And honestly, it's not something I'm interested in at all. It's just like, yes, I love distilling. I, I, I love all that. But the, the like ad administrative side of everything and dealing with the legal stuff, not something I'm interested in and something I want to learn about, but it's not something I want to kind of handle. Right. So I kind of got to the point where I was like, all right, I love beer. This is a lot of fun, but I'm not, there's just something missing. There's something that isn't quite, quite clicking for me. And so I was just looking up single malt distilleries, New Jersey, like distilleries, New Jersey, green to glass, New Jersey. And this one distillery, like 45 minutes from me popped up. 
And I was like, oh, I've never heard of them before. Like, what's going on? And so I contacted them and I was like, hey, you know, I'm in the area. This is my background. Like, I would just love to come visit and talk to you guys and see what's up. And then I got there, like, uh, immediately Camden, one of the owners and the founder and the head distiller. He was like, yeah, of course, come by. Let's talk. So he gave me a tour. They had just gotten their stills installed like two weeks prior to me being there. They were still putting the bar together. Like they weren't even open to the public yet. And we were talking and, you know, he was like hiring to to get the bar program started. We kind of came to an agreement and I signed on. So I was there for the opening of the distillery and Cam and I have worked together to get like all of the production stuff going. So that's been really cool. So in the beginning, my role was just kind of like, all right, let's just make as much alcohol as we can just to start feeding the bar. But then also helping to develop the cocktail program, helping to develop the tour and tasting program, um, cocktail classes, kind of helping to set up the overall structure of how the bar flows. And on top of that, doing um, or like kind of having a hand in uh, product development for liqueurs as well. So in New Jersey, distilleries are not able to bring in outside alcohol, but we want a fully fledged bar program. So our tasting room manager for our first year, he came up with a line of liqueurs, including a sweet vermouth and a dry vermouth that are spirit based. So just using different ingredients to mimic the profiles, just not using wine. So I was able to learn a lot about that, which is really cool. And then also, you know, developing new gin recipes, uh, developing different types of single malt spirit recipes. So it's just been a really cool experience where it's like I'm kind of at this like brand new company that doesn't have anything established yet. And I'm able to take my 15 years of food experience and kind of distill it <laughs> into one experience where I can kind of really help to build a company from the ground up and not have any legal responsibility. <laughs> like I, I'm just kind of living the dream right now. It's super cool. Yeah, I figure as long as you as long as you ask those bar patrons for their ID and make sure that they're uh, of legal drinking age, you're, yeah, you're pretty much you're pretty much in the clear. Um, well, that's great. We will link to Belmara Distillery over on the show notes page, modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. But uh, for now, let's just jump into a couple quick lightning round questions before we close out. The first is a desert island question. So you're stranded on a desert island. Interpret the rules of that however you will. You get to take one bottle of spirits, like one spirit for the rest of your life, for the for the duration of your time on this desert island, and one cocktail for the duration of your time on this desert island. What's your bottle and what's your cocktail? My bottle is Corsair Distilleries Tennessee Single Malt Single Barrel Release from 2018. It had notes of toffee honey and biscuits so that's the highest praise like if i call you toffee honey biscuits like you know i love you because that's like the highest praise i can give um someone or something (laughs) and then cocktail i'm torn between a japanese highball or a penicillin because both are very refreshing but if i'm on a desert island i'm assuming it's hot i might go with a japanese highball Mm, I love that. I I love me a good highball. Um, yeah. Do you have a Do you have a preferred whiskey of choice for that Japanese highball? You know what? No, because that's kind of the the thing that makes it fun is just trying out different single malts in it. So, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna just whatever whatever I scrounge up is what I'll go with. <laughs> 
And again, we are in agreement on that. Um, next question. Uh, if you could have a cocktail with anybody in the world, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? Just kind of paint us a picture. Mm, Anthony Bourdain. It would be in Italy drinking Negronis. Um, and then eventually it would switch to an Aperol Spritz. He, ju- he just did so much for food and culture and helping people from all over the world get interested in food. And to me, food is a great mm-hmm. way to learn about yourself, about the world, about your community. And I just really appreciate all the work that he did for that. And he's definitely one of my big inspirations as a person and as a professional in, in the food industry. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's my answer. I would love to have a drink with Anthony Bourdain. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, Faye, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, sharing your inspiration and some of your technical expertise when it comes to all the little microbes and stuff that are running around below our perceptible threshold of sight. For anybody who wants to follow you or Belmara, what's the best way to uh, keep in touch digitally? So Instagram is the best way to keep up. Um, my personal Instagram account is Faye, F-A-Y-E dot K-J. Um, and you can also find Belmar Distillery on Instagram and Facebook. Brilliant. Well, Faye, thanks once again for being my guest right here on the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. Eric, thank you so much. This is so much fun. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, microbiological and distilling insights courtesy of Faye Johnson, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2023.